Kiora, and welcome to the Ending Life Well podcast. This podcast series for carers focuses on advice and practical solutions for carers who have been thrown into the deep end, looking after a loved family member or friend in their last days, weeks or months of life. Our episode today is Relationships and Intimacy at the End of Life. Hi, I'm Denise Benoust, a Senior Palliative Care Nurse and Educator at Otago Community Hospice. Today I'm going to be talking to Claire Greensmith, a registered psychotherapist with a particular interest in relationships and intimacy at the end of life. Welcome Claire. Kia ora, nice to be here. Claire, touch and relationships are often something that get really challenged when we're looking at the end of life, aren't they? There are often so many factors that can have an impact for couples in particular. Yes, I think that's right. I think when a couple are contending with one in the couple facing serious ill health and all of the issues that the end of life brings, it can feel a little bit like an invasion into your relationship. There'll suddenly be a lot of appointments, there'll be health professionals to have links with, there'll be a lot of practical things that sort of can feel like they can swamp and they absolutely need to be attended to or else things really do fall apart. But it can switch the balance in the relationship from being a couple as partners to sort of potentially being more of a professional carer. And it's very hard to be a carer in that sort of um, nuts and bolts practical way and also be a partner. And so I think it's something worth paying attention to because... The research suggests it's actually very important for people to keep the partnership alive. Yeah, I can understand that. When one of the couple is now spending all their time caring, I can see how that can change a relationship for people. And that would be another real loss. So if we can find ways to keep at least, even if it's some of the time, being a couple rather than a carer and patient, that's got to feel better in the long term. I think we have to be um, nuanced about this because, of course, part of being in a partnership and in a couple can mean that you do care for each other and their acts of love. So, you know, sometimes I've heard people say, I think perhaps a little simplistically, oh, you need to be the wife and we can do the care or you need to be the husband or you need to be the partner. And and that I don't think is true. It's a more nuanced thing about thinking about the balance, really. And so if you can have some aspects of your life as a couple and as a, a partnership that remain a bit apart from that, you know, keeping something as normal as it can be under your roof, I think is quite important. So it might be, you know, trying to sleep in the same room still, or it might be if you're having to sleep in separate rooms that, you know, one hops into the other's bed in the morning so you can have a cuddle and a cup of tea together. Perhaps do some of the things that you might always have done in the relationship. I like that, you know, that doing some of the things you've always done. And I remember talking to a family member once and for them, they'd always had a glass of wine together. Um, uh, before tea they'd sat down after their end of work day and they had a glass of wine together before they had tea and uh, for him he no longer enjoyed the taste of wine 
and for them that was a real loss and yeah. it wasn't the wine it was the sitting together and doing something they'd always done and you know we looked at alternatives um, around what they could do that he could still enjoy a glass of something but I think you're on to something about that ability to sit next to each other maybe you know if, if you're able to sort of sit in proximity then physiologically um, you know, you have that benefit of, of somebody being close by, just in the same way as if we would comfort a child or be next to somebody who's distressed in other times of life. You often sit next to them, you would just sort of grab that person's hand. There is something very comforting about that proximity. And I think you're absolutely onto it when you talk about loss. People have incremental losses to face some that might feel huge, some that might feel very small, but if you put them all together, they feel bigger and bigger. And sometimes we don't even necessarily realise what we've lost, do we? Because it creeps up. Yeah. You know, simple things like holding hands. Yeah. I feel like when somebody's really unwell, we become nervous about touch because we worry that we might hurt them or cause pain, or we're so busy doing the, the caring stuff that we forget about just a loving touch, yeah. just being held. And that touch deprivation is important. It's a thing. Yes, yes it is. And we know that, that babies, and right through the lifespan, you know, babies fail to thrive if they're not exposed to loving touch. They can be clean and well-fed, um, but if they're not exposed to affectionate touch and cuddling and eye contact, um, you know, talking and attunement through the face and the facial gestures, that, it, that applies throughout the lifespan. And so we talk about skin hunger um, sometimes for people mm. when they're very old, where nobody touches them um, in an affectionate way. I don't know if you've ever seen the film notes on a scandal it's a, a sort of challenging film it's got Judy Dench in it and um, Judy Dench is a very lonely woman in her middle years and there's a very poignant scene in the film where she's lying in the bath thinking to herself and she talks about nobody ever touching her unless they accidentally brush against her when she's getting on and off the bus it's very moving and I think it sort of um, conveys how terrible that can be and how affectionate touch is very different from functional touch. When we're busy being a carer, we might think that we are touching, we are connecting, but is it perhaps functional rather than affectionate? Yeah. To hold someone's hand to lift their arm maybe to wash is very different to sitting and holding somebody's hand or rubbing some hand cream in or something like that, which might feel very different. And this isn't always either about a couple. This might be between a parent and child. It might be somebody who's caring for an older parent. And still, you know, those hugs, that sitting, holding hands, sitting beside them on the couch, connecting is still really, really important. That's right. I don't think you have to prescribe the relationship. And I mean, we often talk at hospice, don't we, that the whanau um, being who we choose it to be. So it might actually be a friend that we need to spend that time with, that we connect with. It doesn't have to even be a blood relative. It can just, it's somebody that's important to us that we need to connect with. Yeah, I think that's right. Whanau is who we identify. But we also have to recognise that you know, for the person who is 
perhaps in that position of contending with serious health concerns and at the end of life, the body is still theirs. <laughs> and, you know, we often have a lot of sensitivities anyway in our body in terms of core sense of self and parts of the body that we may feel more or less comfortable in touching. But normally if we sort of think about what might be socially acceptable parts of the body to touch. It tends to be sort of certainly we can often touch somebody on the shoulder even if we don't know them very well or rub the side of their arm or maybe touch their forearm or their hands. But it's also really important that if somebody doesn't want to be touched that they can say that because it would be a terrible intrusion to feel like you're being touched and having to tolerate that if you don't wish to particularly at the end of life. We might feel much more thin-skinned than we might do at other times. That is a really good point, Claire, that we still need that permission. Yes, that's right. With the best of intentions, we might be right, oh, yes, I need to hug this person, but actually it may not be what they want. Absolutely. So there's emotional sort of safeguarding around that, and there's also physical aspects. You know, um, if that person is in pain, but they want to be close and connected and maybe lie next to a partner, then, you know, we need to be really mindful that pain is being attended to so that that person isn't sort of wincing and grimacing and and it be an awful experience because that will be terrible for all parties, really. When my grandmother was dying, all of her grandchildren were around and we were touching her and holding her. She'd had a stroke, so she was non-responsive but still with us. And my dad made a comment afterwards about why we were all touching her all the time and it's kind of brought home to me that it felt right for her but I know that you know if and when my father was in that circumstance he would not want that because it wouldn't be right for him you know and so part of it is us knowing the person isn't it and knowing what they might want if they're unable to tell us. Knowing the person, knowing the relationship, thinking about that context and thinking about, you know, there's a lot of cultural and social norms around touch and we have to be really thoughtful about it. It may be within a lot of cultures, you may touch someone if they're the same gender as you, but you might not touch somebody if they're not. And touch is important too, isn't it? Not only for the person who's unwell, but for the person who's doing the caring. And for them, you know, whether it's the connection with the person they're caring for or perhaps some support people around them, but touch could be really important for them. If they're feeling weighed down, overwhelmed, maybe what they also need is just some loving touch for them. Yes, and some acknowledgement of what a hard job it is. And we communicate so much in look and gaze and expression. And we also communicate so much through touch because actually very profound experiences for us in life are often incredibly hard to put into words. And I don't think we should ever worry about feeling like we can't find the words for something. Sometimes a touch does that instead. And sometimes perhaps we need to be brave and say... I need a hug. Yes, and we have to feel able to and empowered to ask. I think that's a really helpful thing. And I I like to think that um, I'm in tune with what people might want from me. And I'm a hugger. I'm a toucher, a hugger from way back. But there are times I'll say to somebody, would you like a hug or do you need a slap? Um, and, and said in a very jokey, friendly way. Um, and and sometimes it's a bit of yeah. both. You know, it's a hug and then it's a pretend slap. 
because that you know a hug can just perhaps make us feel a little weak at that moment in a time that we need to feel strong yes. so it's it's acknowledging that and knowing that the hug is there and it's been offered yeah. and that sometimes is enough actually I remember a colleague talking about having had something happen within um, their family and saying now don't be nice to me because it'll make me cry and I'm at work and I don't want to cry <laughs> fair dues you know um <laughs> You know, there's all sorts of situations where we may feel, actually, at this point, I can't allow myself to crumble. Claire, the other thing, and probably this is is more around couples um, who are facing the end of life, intimacy is still really important. Um, And it's something that can just disappear without notice. Um, when there's been a long health journey, people have perhaps been in and out of hospital, there's been issues with pain. It's something where it's gone without knowing it was going to be gone. Um, and that can be a real loss. It's important, isn't it, then, for people to find a way to still have intimacy, to connect in that way. Are you meaning to be sexually intimate? Well, sexually intimate, but also sometimes just intimate touch that doesn't have to mean intercourse yes, does it that right. can just mean connecting physically skin to skin being intimate without perhaps intercourse yes. is still perhaps important that's right i mean i think intimacy we might define that quite individually for some people that may involve sexual touch you know often quite naturally in people's lives particularly as we age things change a bit in that way But that intimacy and connection which defines you as a couple is very important. One of the things I think I've heard most in my time in terms of doing psychotherapy and doing couple work is often that ability to sort of have a spoon cuddle, you know, where you really sort of snuggle up to each other. It may be last thing at night before you go to sleep. It may be when you first wake up in the morning. And that can still be possible even with severe illness and even right at the end of life and you know we often pitch somebody who's has serious health concerns into a hospital bed which is a single bed it's very hard to give somebody a a decent cuddle in a single bed I don't know whether you've ever tried but it's it can feel like a balancing acrobatic session really I would only say bringing an ordinary bigger bed into a a lounge say if someone needs to be um, moved from a bedroom um, you know then that might enable other people to you know that that person's partner to hop into bed and to be able to still cuddle up to that person even if they're sleeping separately Um, the other thing is if somebody does need a hospital bed it's perfectly reasonable to bring in a trundle bed tie them together so you have a bigger space to be able to in next to somebody and to hop out if that person needs some space and, and some time to sleep. But to be able to keep your house as normal as possible, you know, I think those things make a difference. Don't make your bedroom the medicine cabinet. And we can end up with bedrooms full of equipment um, so it doesn't feel like that person's bedroom anymore. You're right, because places can become cluttered with all the medical paraphernalia. Yeah. And Claire, I like your idea where somebody, where there is a need for a hospital bed, propping a single bed or a trundle bed. Because, you know, if a couple's been together, whether it's been five years or 50 years, if they're used to sharing a space, 
to not share that space is going to impact oh, it, on it sleep. It can be terrible. And rest. It can be terrible for people. Yeah. That's the thing that often people will say they find sort of almost agonising. I cared for a family member at home and um, he was in a hospital bed and needed to be. Towards the end, his wife really wanted to cuddle with him and so we moved him over a little bit, to a little more to the side of the bed um, and she climbed up beside him on the side and I popped a chair in behind so that she had some security around not falling off and she was able to put her arms around him um, and cuddle as they had done and that was how he died yeah. and to me that was beautiful because they were a very close couple and to have been a part of enabling that to happen had great meaning for me as well as for them. And you're right, that's a very simple, practical strategy to avoid a calamity. <laughs> but the emotional reward of that was priceless. Yes, it was. It was what was needed in the moment. Yeah. And we really need to remember that because I think we can get very caught up with health and safety. And certainly in the research that I did, that was one of the things that people said was a barrier um, or, or they were told that was a barrier to perhaps being able to hop into bed next to somebody. So we really have to think about, is it a risk? Is it a risk that yeah. we can mitigate? Is it a risk that in a way might shame people if we talk about it in that way? And I, I think we have to be extremely conscious as health professionals of our propensity to shame people if they ask us for something. And in fact, we should as health professionals be offering that. Yeah. You know, making that normal. Yeah, that's right. Um, and of course, yeah. if that couple don't want to do that, that's absolutely fine. But that they know that that's an option and that people will think about how they can make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. Claire, I have to just go back to, I loved your idea when you talked about having a bigger bed in the lounge. And I was thinking, you know, what I could see with that would be the cat, the dog, the grandchildren being able to climb up on the bed and be around the person that they love um, in a safe way without a formal sitting beside the bed, yeah. scared to touch. That's um, right. And, and, and I remember going to visit somebody on a community visit and that's exactly the setup. And I thought, this is really smart. The, the double bed was in prime position in the living room, you know, right by the fire. <laughs> Dog was up there, the, the cat was there, you know, people were in and out and they'd hop next to the person and have a bit of a chat, feet up. You know, it was a very lovely situation to witness. Absolutely. And that's that's really what we'd be aiming for, isn't it? And feeling of normal yeah. in, in a very unnormal time. Yeah, yeah, that's right. One of the other things, Claire, is often for the person who is unwell also is that they are perhaps feeling... Um, unattractive, their body image has changed, um, they may have lost a lot of weight, they may have gained a lot of weight. Both of those things can happen with medications. They're less physically capable than they were. Sometimes there is an external deformity, perhaps from a tumour or something like that, that can, their whole body image has changed. And that would be another time when so important to let them know that they are still loved and they're still touchable. Yes, and that sense around body image is our core sense of ourself, which is, it's intrinsic, it's part of our inner world and it can be extremely painful for people. 
And I don't believe in any way, shape or form is that gendered. I think it's part of being human. And um, often, you know, again, sometimes quite maybe simplistic solutions can be suggested or, you know, make sure that that person has their lipstick on and things like that. But I certainly think, you know, part of feeling like the body is important and body image is important is to sort of pay attention to the nicest sheets you can find, not having the bed rustling with plastic and making sure people perhaps have nightwear that they feel comfortable and presentable in. Not many of us would have people come round to our house and we'd be sitting in a jammies or a, a nighty or something um often one of the things i think is really hard for people is to have someone come round and they're in their nightwear but they haven't got a bra on and they don't like that or that they haven't got underwear on you know so it's trying to think about that person's dignity it's often around dignity and privacy and it's about sort of you know if that person's clothes hang off them that can feel terrible or if they feel really tight and uncomfortable, that can be really hard. And there's that sort of battle between, oh, there's no point going and buying something because, you know, I won't be wearing it for very long. But actually to feel comfortable in clothing, to feel like you're presenting to the world in the way that you might usually do or feel most comfortable with is really important. Keeping people's hair trimmed if that's what they would normally do. You know, those sorts of things can be really important and most of us would want that for ourselves. Claire, thank you for this. It's that reminder that we need to ask permission, we need to ask what the person wants, the person who's unwell, but we perhaps as a carer also need to consider our own needs and wants. And so being able to communicate about that is important, being honest about it, that I need a hug right now. Or would you like a hug? You look like you could do with one. So being able to be open and ask is probably one of the key things. Yes, the communication is really crucial. And to be able to communicate about some of those things, you know, you may want to address them spontaneously as they come up. But it can also be useful within a relationship if the person is at their liveliest and pain-free and in a position to have a conversation to perhaps check some principles out about what might be the right or the wrong thing to do bearing in mind that we might always change our mind and what might be the right thing one day um, might not be the next and 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 as you've said you know you've instructed family members as to what you think some of your wishes might be and that's always a useful thing to do. So talking about some of these things before someone is immediately end of life can be really helpful as well Um, and often relationships we might know well already what would be wanted within a relationship but it does no harm to just check that out. Claire thank you very much for coming in today. And thank you listeners for joining us today. This podcast was brought to you by Otago Community Hospice with support from Hospice New Zealand. If you found this discussion helpful, check out our other episodes of Ending Life Well, a podcast series for carers. You can also find more resources for caring for a person who's dying at otagohospice.co.nz forward slash education. 